You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We had three names for this week. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. First up was who? Irenaeus. First up was Irenaeus. All right, so let's get her started. Anybody have anything about Irenaeus that stood out to them positively, background-wise? Just... Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Irenaeus, well... He did have a high view of God. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the first to refer to the New Testament as Scripture. Yes. You all hearing that? One of the first to refer to the New Testament as Scripture. Had a very high view of God. Utilized both the Old and New Testament for his teaching ministry and his apologetic ministry. Yep. Okay. Good. Anything else about him uniquely that stands out to you? He was a disciple of Polycarp. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Okay, why is that significant? Because Polycarp was a disciple of John. John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. So pretty short linkage to the last living apostle. Okay, good. Very good. What else? To salvation. Okay. Right. So his understanding of the atonement was less developed than ours. And um, so his emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Why was the emphasis on the humanity of Christ so important to Irenaeus? And we're all a product of our time period. We are influenced by the, the, the historical period of time in which we live. We are being influenced right now. He was influenced then. What was going on? What was the big issue for him? It was Gnosticism. Gnosticism. So Gnosticism, somebody want to take a stab at a definition of Gnosticism? Right, thank you, Eric. It was, it was the idea that we salvation was achieved through secret knowledge, <laughs> higher knowledge. And uh, the Gnostic teachers were the ones who held those keys, as supposedly, and they would initiate you into these mysteries. That's right. Okay, good. So in particular, what, what was the emphasis of Gnosticism and why Irenaeus's uh, focus on the humanity of Christ? Yes, exactly. So it was a Platonic dualism, right, that emphasized the spirit as good and the, and the material as evil. And so for the Gnostics, um, Christ could not contact the the defiled of of the material world. So he appeared to be human, appeared to be human, but wasn't human like you and I. Okay. Um, What was I going to say? I was going to say something else about that. Hmm. 
Oh, the, um, the other reason for his emphasis on the Old Testament was that, that and, and Gnosticism is a broad term that applies to a, a whole body of false teaching. In fact, a lot of what we know about Gnosticism, we know about it because of the writings of Irenaeus. It's not that the writings of the Gnostics survive that much. It's mostly his writings about them is how we learn much of what we know about it. But um, the, we, he, Gnosticism says that, the, that there is God who is all spirit, all spiritual, and because of that, there's no way that he can come in contact with, with the material world. And so the, the idea that God, as we know him, <laughs> created the world for them was a non-starter. And so what they postulated was a, a series of lesser beings that are, that are like a half step removed from God in this this long regression, they called them angels or things like that, uh, until they got down to what they called the demiurge. The demiurge is just a, it's a Greek word. It means basically the, the creator of people. And so this demiurge, uh, they identified as the God of the Old Testament, the creator God of the Old Testament. So he was far removed from their conception of, of God because of his immediate contact with creation. So you can see how for them, the Old Testament, and uh, later in the Marcion, we, we can see him throw the Old Testament away entirely and so forth, but that, that notion that the, the spiritual is good, the material is, is lesser to evil on a continuum, they couldn't abide the idea of um, a God-man in, in Christ Jesus. And so that's why Irenaeus spent so much of his teaching ministry focused on the humanity of Christ. Because unless Christ is truly human, then there is no redemption for us. Right? So thus his, his emphasis there. Okay, good. Very good. Let's see. Anything else that stands out to you? Right. Yes, exactly. So that emphasis, uh, starting with that Adam and Eve are like children and Adam's fall was seen as, as a, a childish, um, I don't want to say misbehavior, but, but he, he underemphasized the result of the fall and original sin and all those things. And, uh, and that Christ came to, to mature, Christ, you know, Christianity by recapitulation. So the idea that uh, Christ stands in for Adam, where Adam fails, Christ succeeds. And we are united with him, and we succeed with him. Okay? So are those ideas like completely out to lunch? No. There are elements of truth in that. Right? Paul in Romans chapter 5 develops that whole Adam-Christ uh, contrast. All died in Adam, all live in Christ. So, so he's not, uh, Irenaeus is not, <laughs> in fact, um, one author, I don't know if this one or not, I don't remember, said that he was the most significant theologian after the Apostle Paul. 
So he explored lots of very important areas. Did he get it all right? Nope. Was it early in its development? Yes. Um, but generally, his his he was on the right track. Okay, very brilliant man, very very uh, seminal thinker. We have much to be uh, grateful for God's work in his life. Okay, good. Anything else that he emphasized? Do you remember? In the battling of Gnosticism, right? The Gnostics were saying, "Hey, we've got these secret teachers, and they've got this secret knowledge, and Jesus taught it to them." And how did Irenaeus refute that? How did he respond to that? Okay, yes. So he made that observation. If if the secret knowledge that you claim you have, that you claim you got from Christ, well, then why is it written down anywhere? <laughs> and why wasn't it established and passed down through the early? church leaders, and so forth. And in fact, he relied on his discipler, Polycarp, who could make specific identification with his discipler, who was John. And so, for Irenaeus, it was very important, this, this uh, apostolic continuity, the... the, the um, authority and tradition of teaching that went from leader to leader to leader. Okay? You can see why that would be important to him, why that would be a powerful argument. Is he could say, hey, the guy who taught me theology was taught by John. And he didn't say nothing about agnosticism. In fact, just the opposite. In first John it's one of the things that John is is um, combating there is the proto or early form of Gnosticism. John writing that in maybe around 80-85 AD 85 somewhere around there, okay, towards the end of that uh, first century. Okay, so you see the, the continuity beginning to be put in place between bishops. Okay, is that all good? Is that a good thing to have, by the way? Continuity of bishops. Could be. Could, could be open to abuse, too, couldn't it? And in fact, that's what we will see. It became subject to abuse. All right. Good. Very good. Anything else? Any other thoughts on Irenaeus? Stuff that stood out to you? Would you like to meet him? I can't wait to meet him. He's a lion of the faith. Yeah. Can't wait to meet him. Okay, good. All right, so we go from Irenaeus, fast forward to a man from North Africa. Okay, a man from North Africa. Who's next? Yes, right. So, Tertullian was trained in law. Okay. By the way, some of the best theologians are former lawyers. Okay. So, Tertullian was trained in law, and he uh, was fluent in, in Greek, but he did not write in Greek. Greek is a very uh, nuanced and flexible language. It's, it's an excellent language for minutiae and philosophy, which deals in minutia often. So Greek really accommodates that well. He wrote in Latin. Latin is a very 
um, structured kind of language. It doesn't deal well with nuance. And the Romans didn't deal well with nuance. They were law and order, you know, you do it this way or, you know, or we run you over kind of thing. So, so this Latin-trained, speaking, writing lawyer was raised up by God to really give shape and definition to the triunity of God. Yes. So, very good. He introduced um, concepts that are still in use today. Right? So, one of his... Um, one of his proofs for God, do you remember he talked about in here? One of his proofs for God? Let's see if I can find it here. Uh, it was the idea that basically, if it was easy to understand, it wouldn't be true. Eh, maybe I didn't, I may have read it somewhere else, besides, beside the point. But he was just saying that this, this would not come out of the brain of, of man. The triunity of God is not something dreamed up in the heart and mind of man. It is too fantastic. It's, it's beyond our experience base. That God is one in substance, three in person. You and I are one in person and one in substance. God is one in substance, three in person. So, he... That that um, well, let's see. We'll save that. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Tertullian more. So we'll just save that. I'll hang on to that. So he coined some other terms, important terms for heresies that that were around in that time and subsequent. Do you remember any of those that are introduced here in the chapter? Subordinationism. Subordinationism yes. Right. Right. So the Spirit and Son were subordinate to the Father less than the Father. Okay. Yep. All right. We're on page 46 at the top. Patropassionism. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay. What does that mean? Right. Yeah, literally means the suffering of the Father. Okay, so that particular error uh, says that it was the Father who died on the cross, not the Son. Okay, so it's out of bounds. <laughs> Here's an interesting observation, though. Listen to people pray in the church today. You'll often hear people thanking God the Father for dying for them. It's not that they are committed to this modalism or this patroposianism. It's just that they're sloppy in their speech. So they begin addressing God the Father in prayer. And as they continue talking, they slide over into the atonement and they forget who they're addressing. And then they wrap it all up in Jesus' name, or in his name. Right? Just, just sloppy thinking, that's all. Okay. 
Now, none of you are going to be willing to pray publicly again, I realize that. You've all been put on blast. But it's good. We should, we should take the time to think about what it is we are articulating in prayer. That we do not thank the Father for dying for us because he didn't. Absolutely. Yes, that the God of the Old Testament is an angry, vengeful God, and the God of the New Testament is, is all soft and cuddly. Yes, excellent. Very well said. It is very well said. That's right. We are all influenced by the world in which we live. It's, and the sooner we are willing to admit that reality, the better opportunity we have to begin to do self-examination and be self-critical uh, and in an attempt to jettison that which is not true and cling to that which is. That's exactly right. We need each other. That's right. Very good. Very good. Okay, we're going to look at Tertullian in more detail uh, tonight in a little little bit. So um, we'll be circling back. So is there anything else that, from the reading that you is bursting in your bosom? You just want to say it? Say again. His personality. His personality. Thank you. Yeah. So talk to draw that out for me a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he actually was not a very nice guy. He was harsh. He, he was a lawyer, yeah. He's definitely, you know, get yourself a New York lawyer. Well, in this case, get yourself a, you know, a lawyer from Carthage. <laughs> yes, yes, so thank you for bringing that up. So he was uh, deeply immersed in asceticism, right? That's the, that's the severe denial of the body in, in, for his case, in the pursuit of holiness. So he wanted nothing to do with, you know, what he saw as worldly things. So he was a Puritan, an early Puritan in that way. Yeah, indeed. So he'd make a great friend and a terrible enemy. So good, very good. Thank you. Okay. Last for this week. We have Clement of Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? <coughs> Egypt. Okay. Okay. So, what do we know about Alexandria? Uh, do we know it yet? No, we don't know it yet. I'm sorry. You won't know it until you read chapter 7. Sorry. I'm going to retract that question. Let's just talk about Clement. What about Clement? Yes. Right. He was the anti-Tertullian. An anti-Tertullian. He was, he was very much enamored with philosophy. He thought philosophy uh, was very appropriate and served a very useful role in the defense of the Christian faith. Okay. So, again, particularly enamored with Platonism, the duality of Platonic uh, philosophy. Okay. Yep. He was an academic. Good. Anything else? Born as a pagan, converted, yeah. 
makes that determination. <laughs> yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, we like good philosophy, but not bad philosophy. And then who determines that? Yes. Okay. All right. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Yes, and that that contrast that you're speaking of here between rationalism and um, philosophy, put it that way, or, or no, that's not well said. Between d divine revelation and and human ability to think rationally continues in tension for two thousand years. It's still in tension today. So should we press into the scriptures with our minds to try to understand the mysteries of God? Yes. Is there a place to say this far and no further? <laughs> Seems like there is. Yeah, good. It's good. Okay. Anything else that stands out about him? Yeah, he's displaying the wrath of God and the love of God. That's figures of speech. Okay. What page are you on? What was it? I wrote it down. Okay. Got it. You don't remember which page we read it, huh? Okay. So he, he explained the wrath of God and the love of God as figures of speech. Okay. I missed it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ah, there it is. Yeah, page 55. That's right. Kind of an interesting conclusion that he came to there. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. God has no emotion. Yeah. Yes. That's right. So. Is a lot of emphasis on, well, there on page 54 on the bottom. Practicing self-restraint and endurance, living righteously, reigning over passions, those ideas were very important to him. And partially because he devalued the material world, which includes your body and mine. So those things were to be subdued. <laughs> Good. Okay, anything else? All right. Next week, we'll do seven, eight, and nine. I'm going to introduce you to one of them tonight. Actually, two of them. Two of them. So I'll introduce you to Origen and Cyprian tonight, so you'll have a head start. Page 8, the early fathers. So we're going to look at a, a selection of fathers from the early centuries. Okay. Primarily second and third. Now, Put your thinking cap on for a moment and turn back two pages. Page six. And you'll remember we spent a fair amount of time here on page six. And there were ten what? 
waves of persecution, ten waves of persecution. You remember we went through these. They covered a period of a couple of centuries. You also remember that these persecutions began sporadic and localized at first, and then over time they intensified until the final persecutions were empire-wide and were exceedingly gruesome and violent. Okay? So with that as your background, turning back to page 8, we're going to look at these men who lived in that cauldron and how they acquitted themselves in the face of tremendous suffering, tremendous persecution. So let's begin with Polycarp. So I've got a picture of him. It's, it's, not, it's a little fuzzy because it was taken before digital photography was available. Okay. As you see there, his, um, his dates, these are approximate dates. Uh, so somewhere around 8070 to 155. Okay. Lived about 85 years, and that's by his own testimony, thereabouts. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, so I just put this up here for you because probably Smyrna is not on your travel log. Uh, yeah, it's in Georgia, that's right. Uh, uh, Smyrna, you can see there, is on the west coast of the country of Turkey. Okay. And Smyrna probably stands out in your thinking because it is one of the seven churches of the Revelation, okay? Church of Smyrna. As you look up there, you can see Ephesus and uh, Thyatira is up there and Pergamum and so forth. You see those churches, those seven churches of Revelation right, right in that area, okay? all on the west coast, <coughs> southwest coast of modern-day Turkey. All right, so that's where, that's where Polycarp was the bishop. Okay, so is that what he looked like? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, he looks he looks a little too European to be from uh, Turkey. But in any case, I mean these are these are paintings obviously removed by centuries, millennia. <laughs> but that's at least a picture of a guy that's represented to be Polycarp. So. Uh, what stands out about the life of Polycarp? Why did we choose him? Well, we chose him for two reasons. Number one, he is a direct disciple of the Apostle John. And that's significant. That gives us contact <laughs> with the apostolic era. And that is exciting. If, if for no other reason, that's exciting. But what makes Polycarp stand out is how he died. And we know how he died because... The church in Smyrna uh, wrote it all down and then sent it out to other churches in uh, Turkey, in that area, that they would know and that they could rejoice and bring glory to God for the way Polycarp died. He died so in such faith that they wrote this up and circulated it as an encouragement to others. Why? Well, what was happening in 155? Well, we have to turn back, right? 155. What do we find? So, 155 puts us under the persecution of Pius. Okay, so why did they write it up? Why did they circulate it? 
to be an encouragement to others who are facing persecution. So rather than me try to recount it for you, let me read at least excerpts of it to you. Okay? So... But when the most admirable Polycarp, when he heard that he was sought for, uh, persecution had broken out and they were searching for the leaders of the church, uh, he was in no measure disturbed, but resolved to continue in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many, he was persuaded to leave it. He departed, therefore, to a country house not far distant from the city. There he stayed for a few days with a few friends, engaged in nothing else night and day other than praying for all men and for the churches throughout the world according to his usual custom. He was a pastor. And while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him three days before he was taken, and behold, the pillow under his head seemed to him on fire. Upon this, turning to those who were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burned alive." And when those who sought for him were at hand, he departed to another dwelling, whither his pursuers immediately came after him. And when they found him not, they seized upon two youths that were there, one of whom, being subjected to torture, confessed. It was thus impossible that he should continue to hide, since those that betrayed him were of his own household. So basically, they captured one of his servants and tortured him until he... Uh, told where he was to be found. His, his pursuers then, along with horsemen, taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of preparation with their usual weapons, as if going out against a robber. And being about, you can, you, by the way, you're going to notice the um, the language of the arrest of Jesus in this. And uh, what I would say is that, that they are, they are consciously reflecting on the arrest of Jesus and it is influencing their language, their choice of language in this. Okay? So going out with him against, like going out against a robber, right? And that's what Jesus said. You come against me like as a robber. And being come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped into another place, but he refused, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So, when he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. And as those who were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something uh, to eat and drink should be set before them, as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. So he basically said, Give these guys that have come to arrest me, something to eat, and I'm going to go pray. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he would not cease for two full hours, to the astonishment of them that heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. So he made quite an impression on the authorities that had come to arrest him. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, having made mention of all that had at any time come in contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, this is small c Catholic, by the way, okay, not Roman Catholic, Catholic meaning universal, 
where am I? Uh, the time of his departure had arrived, and they set him upon an ass and uh, conducted him into the city, the day being that of the great Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> Irnach Herod, accompanied by his father Naketes, both riding in a chariot, met him. And taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in seeing Lord Caesar and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and so make sure your safety? Uh, But he at first gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him and cast him with violence out of the chariot insomuch that in getting down from the chariot he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste, and was conducted to the stadium, where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. So they're taking him into a great amphitheater uh, full of people uh, who want to see him executed. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one who was at that, uh, no one, excuse me, no one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your old age, and other similar things, according to their customs. Um, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen, then in the stadium, waved his hand toward them, and while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly, he probably didn't say thou art, by the way. You can tell when this was translated. Um, Since thou art vainly... Urge that, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am. Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint a day, and you shall hear them. Proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, To you I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith, for we are taught to give all honor due, which entails no injury upon ourselves, to the powers and authorities which are ordained by God. But as for these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you, except you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. 
Uh, but why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. While he spoke these and many others like them, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was so full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, and the overthrower of our gods, he who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Okay, wasn't time to eat Christians. It then seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burnt alive. For thus it behooved the vision which was revealed to him with regard to the pillow to be fulfilled. Yeah, we'll jump ahead here. But when they were about to fix him to the stake with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the fire. And they did not nail him, but simply bound him. He prayed, I give thanks to, to thee, uh, excuse me, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs in the cup of Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both soul and body, through the incorruptible, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost. And they kindled the fire, and the fire shaped itself in the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship which filled with the wind and encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold that is, uh, or silver glowing in a furnace. Uh, at length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And on doing this, there came forth a, a dove and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. Uh, when the fire was uh, extinguished, the people wondered. Uh, that there should have been a difference between the unbelievers and the elect of whom this most admirable Polycarp was one, having in his own times been an apostle, having been an apostolic and prophetic teacher and bishop of the Catholic Church, which is in Smyrna. For every word that went out of his mouth either has been or shall be yet accomplished. Uh, they are then, the Christians are refused his body uh, for burial. And let's see. They finish... This and they say, since then you requested that we would at, at large make you make you acquainted with what really took place. We have for the present sent you this summary account through our brother Marcus. When therefore you yourselves read this epistle, be pleased to send it to the brethren at greater distance, that they may glorify the Lord also. So there you go. So that's how and why Polycarp is known to us in history is this remarkable um, account of his martyrdom. Is it true in every single detail? I don't know. I wasn't there. Right? Was he burned and his, and his body not consumed? Did it smell like baking bread and not burnt flesh? I don't know. I don't know. But 
it proved uh, historically to be a, a very important um, bulwark to support the believers who were facing similar circumstances. Okay, and I'm very grateful that it has been preserved for us to read. Okay, so that's Polycarp. Next up, is this fella. Apparently they only had a black and white camera for him. So this is Justin Martyr. We read about him uh, last week. Is that right? So what do we know about Justin Martyr? Well, we know that he was a philosopher, a follower of Plato, and he promised a vision of God to those who deeply delved into the truth. He said, if you dig for the truth, you will see God. He was converted at age 35 by contact with an elderly Christian man. And he was an early Christian apologist who used his training in Greek philosophy to explain Christology to the educated classes of Rome. That is probably his largest contribution, is that he, being trained as a philosopher, uh, was able to explain Christianity using philosophical language to the educated classes who were themselves very steeped in philosophy. He saw Christ as the fulfillment of the truth of Plato. So we talked about that last week. He saw Plato as a proto-Christian. That is, that someone who you know, predated Christ by more than 400 years, but was searching for truth. Uh, he was beheaded, and that earned him his epitaph as martyr. And he is best known for his statement, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. Okay, so you can kill us, but you can't <laughs> really hurt us. So his, his vision of eternal life was strong for him, very strong. Okay. Looks like a nice fellow, huh? Irenaeus. Here's Irenaeus. So he ministered in Lyon, France, opposed Gnosticism, and wrote against it after his thorough study of it. He uh, himself knew Polycarp, who was discipled by John, drew heavily on the apostolic tradition to fight against the Gnostics, and he quoted frequently from the Old and New Testaments. He, as we said, he... Um, emphasized apostolic succession as a means to establish truth against the Gnostics. And uh, we know much of what we know about Gnosticism today because of his writings, five-volume writings. Uh, short title is called Against Heresies. Okay, so there's Irenaeus. Now, That is Tertullian. Get a good look at it, so when you see him in heaven, you'll know. You can introduce yourself to him. A 
lawyer by training, wrote in Latin, drew heavily on Roman legal distinctions to help explain the Trinity. He advanced the idea of original sin as passing from parent to child like a genetic trait. He taught that conception brings about the creation of a soul. So he's the one who introduced that idea that from uh, Genesis 5, when Adam had a son, well, here, I'll read it to you. Okay, And by the way, this is still controversial in some places. Uh, when Adam lived, verse 3, uh, chapter 5, and when Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image, and he named him Seth. Okay? That's still image and likeness language that is spoken of of Adam himself by God. So, from uh, Tertullian's understanding, uh, when a man and a woman conceive a child, they, they conceive a complete person, body and soul. So, he's, uh, Tertullian is very well known for two sayings that I'd like to explore with you, one of which is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What do you think he means by that? Yes, that's right. Exactly right. That martyrdom actually, and this is a historic reality, martyr, martyrism, martyr is, martyrs have a, a positive effect often upon others who look on and see them dying for their faith and encourages others to commit as well. True Christians. True Christians. True Christians, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So the blood of the Mars is the seed of the church. You'll hear that used frequently. It rolls around in missionary circles a lot. His other one, a philosophy, or his other statement that he's well known for is, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? So what do you think that one's about? Yes. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, Athens, that's easy to understand. Athens is associated with the pinnacle of philosophy, and Jerusalem is what? Yeah. Philosophy is Athens. It is Jerusalem is the place of the oracles of God. It's where his temple is, or was. So that's the, that's the tension that he is... Putting forth here is he's, he's saying divine revelation symbolized by Jerusalem versus the philosophies of men symbolized by Athens. What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What does philosophy have to do with revelation? And for Tertullian, his answer would be bumpkiss, nothing. <laughs> that philosophy only spoils revelation. Okay, so he was very much opposed to Greek philosophy, very much opposed. He introduced the the um, 
formulation of the Trinity here as God is one in substance and three in persons. These actually are legal ideas. So the one in substance is uh, not material. It's not talking about the material nature of God because God is immaterial. What it is talking about is, uh, is property rights. So God is one in property rights. And then three in persons, it, 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 it was used of, mul- of the characters in a play, multiple characters in a play, but it also is used as parties in a lawsuit. So again, his legal background. So you have, you have one set of property rights, and for Tertullian, the property rights that, that, the, that the triune God shares in common is sovereignty. And then you have three parties to the lawsuit, as it were, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, So they share identically in sovereignty. So you see that emphasis on, uh, on the, uh, the godness of God, if I can say it that way. And then they also are three in person. So, and we haven't, you know, this is, what is this? He died in 222, so we're 1,800 years later, and we haven't really improved much on his abilities to put some fences around this thing. Okay? So you can see this ancient diagram of the Trinity. You see that? Let's see if we can make it a little bigger here. Sorry, that's definitely not bigger. So... The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. So, it's an ancient attempt at representing this truth in a picture form. Okay? All right. So, let me introduce you to the next character. You're going to love this one. Let me, we'll shrink him down a little bit so you can see more of him. He's that good. Here, I'll show you what he's pointing to. Yeah. What Latin word would he use? Uh, probably would be Yahweh. Yeah. The personal God. In his writings? Uh, no, well... I don't read Latin, so I'm not sure exactly what Latin word he would have would have used. Um, it's an interesting question. Somebody Google search it, see if we can figure it out. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure. Okay. Well, this uh, shady character is uh, Origen. Okay, and uh, it's worth looking, you know, at this part of it too, just to understand what's involved in the picture. So you see books, right? He's got his finger pointing to a human skull. This is not all random sort of stuff. It's just pointing to his great learning. He was the greatest scholar of his age. And his attempts at kind of reconciling truth, as it were, you see Christ crucified up there in the corner. So that was important to him. All right. I will not opine on whether I think he's a believer or not. 
I don't know. There are um, certainly many things that makes one scratch his head, but let's kind of unpack that a little bit. So he was the greatest scholar of his age. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt, from devout parents. So he is a second-generation Christian, which is rare. After his father was martyred, he supported his family by teaching Greek literature, became the president of the school at age 18. So he was absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He was also an ascetic, so that notion of denying the, the physicality of the body and its passions. In, uh, in an attempt at applying Jesus' words in Matthew 19.12, which says, For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this, let him accept it. He then castrated himself. So he was attempting to literally fulfill the scripture as he understood it. It played, obviously, in very well to his ascetic nature. Okay, So he was a prolific writer. Uh, he's credited with over 2,000 works. He was able to keep seven full-time secretaries employed, <coughs> copying down his dictation. Okay? So we're, we're talking about a brilliant man. Okay? He leaves all of us in the dust. He is um, best known for, from a, a, um, a good point of view, if we'll call it that way, from what's called the Hexapla. Hexapla, H-E-X-E-P-L-A. It's a six-column parallel Old Testament. Right? Are you familiar with the concept of a parallel Bible? When you open a Bible, you'll have it right? And normally four kinds of translations, English translations, or maybe one might be a, a, Latin, or a Hebrew or a Greek, possibly. Okay, But he is the first one to bring together in parallel form a, a six-column parallel Bible of the Old Testament. It contained the Hebrew, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, three Greek translations, and the Septuagint itself. So he had them all lined up, okay? So scholars, only scholars do that kind of stuff. Right? It's only scholars that do that kind of stuff. And the amount of work involved, this is obviously pre-word processing, the work involved in bringing that all together and lining it up means you've got to read all the languages to keep it, keep it lined up. Okay, So the hexapla. Uh, on a less positive note, he is also the father of allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation. And so what he taught, and it has been picked up from him and continued, was that there are three levels of meaning in the scriptures. So there is first a literal meaning of the text. Then there is what he calls the moral meaning of the text. And he says that that is edifying to the soul, the moral meaning. 
But the one that really interested him was the allegorical meaning, and that was the hidden meaning, which uh, was of great importance for the development of faith. So the allegorical meaning. So, let me give you a flavor of of one of Origen's allegories. See what you think. This stuff preaches, believe me. So this is his exegesis of the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, 25 to 37. So you're all familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Okay. This will clarify his approach and its relative strengths and weaknesses. Origen first acknowledges the literal meaning of the parable, one of the several senses he believes the passage possesses. Jesus teaches that the man going down was the neighbor of no one except him who willed to keep the commandments and prepare himself to be a neighbor to everyone who is in need. That's the literal meaning of the text. Okay? After quickly summarizing the literal meaning of the parable, Origen refers to a previous allegorical interpretation that he will modify slightly. This is one of the beauties of, of allegory is that it's infinitely flexible. It's never nailed down. Um, but he, he proposed the following correspondences in his allegory. So check this out. Jerusalem, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jerusalem equals paradise. Jericho equals the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priests are the law. The Levites, the prophets. The Levite, the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The beast is the Lord's body. The inn is the church. The two denarii are the father and the son, and the innkeeper is the head of the church. And Samaritan's promise to return is the Lord's second coming. Man, he's got the whole Bible in this one parable. He's worked it all in. So Origen observes that all this has been said reasonably and beautifully. However, he desires to modify the allegory slightly. The man going down from Jerusalem, Origen believes, cannot represent all people, for not all go down from Jerusalem or paradise to Jericho or the world. One has come down, he who was sent on account of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what of the wounds? Yes, they represent disobedience, but more particularly vices and sins. Origen's reasoning for identifying Jesus as the Samaritan is particularly intriguing. Had not Jesus been called a Samaritan by his enemies in John 8.48? And could not the Samaritan be linked etymologically to the word guardian? He is the one who neither grows drowsy nor sleeps as he guards Israel. On account of the half-dead man, the Samaritan set out not from Jerusalem into Jericho, like the priest and the Levite who went down, or if he did go down, he went down to rescue and care for the dying man. The Jews had said to him, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Though he denied having a demon, he was unwilling to deny that he was a Samaritan, for he knew that he was the guardian. Okay, So that's how he kind of brings this in. Uh, having thoroughly filled out the allegories in the parable, Origen develops the parable the parable's homiletical possibilities. All who are badly off need the Samaritan's care. The oil and the wine carried by the Samaritan are not only for the one man who had fallen into trouble, but for others who, for various reasons, have been wounded and need bandaging and oil and wine. The Samaritan places the wounded traveler on his own beast of burden, that is, his own body, since he dared to assume a man. Hence, the Samaritan bears our sins and grieves for us. And he goes on from there. So you can kind of see how once he makes all these identifications... Then this thing, you know, it preaches. You can, you can run with it. And so that is allegorical preaching. <laughs> that is a true statement. 
<laughs> yes, it is a lot less painful. <laughs> perhaps so. Perhaps the literal interpretation of Matthew 19 convinced them that allegory was the way to go. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yes. So we can thank Origen for the allegorical method, which uh, is with us to this day. It is with us to this day. Um, maybe not quite that wild, but you get on the uh, YouTube and you can find some pretty wild ones out there. Okay, But probably more importantly is it, it infected the church for hundreds of years, the allegorical approach. Okay, Now, I said, uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm not God. I don't know for sure where he's at, but there are a number of his beliefs that are very troubling, so I'll give you a few of them. So he assumed the material world was implicitly evil, but we could have figured that out by his commitment to Platonic philosophy. Uh, he taught the pre-existence of the soul. So for his, uh, from his understanding, there was a pool of souls out there somewhere, and then when a, a a person is conceived, a child is conceived, then a soul is added. Okay. Uh, it smells like Mormonism, doesn't it? Um, man, he taught that man's position in the world is due to his conduct in his pre-existent state. So he conceived of some sort of pre-existent, pre-Adamic state, uh, and that... Uh, the fate that falls, if I can use that word, that falls you and I in life is, is uh, attributable to how we lived in our pre-existent state. And again, that sounds positively cultic. Uh, he denied the material resurrection. Again, why? Why would he deny the material resurrection? Plato, yeah. The body is evil. It stays in the ground. All right. Let me just remind you to understand this, force of this. Okay. Uh, let's see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, verse 22, G the Jews search for signs or ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. This is Paul's assessment of the unbelieving world. The Jews are searching for wisdom, for philosophy, and the, um, or excuse me, the Greeks and the Jews are demanding signs, right? They are always demanding a sign. Give me another sign. Give me another sign. They're asking Christ for that. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Right? And so when I was with you, what was my message? I preached to you nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And with that crucifixion comes the resurrection, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel, but he denied it because of his philosophical pre-commitments. He taught a universalism that eventually, somewhere way out in the distant future, that all men and all angels would be saved. That God's mercy was very, very wide and would eventually scoop up all of humanity and all of the fallen angelic realm as well. 
And then fifth, he taught uh, what was known, what is known as the ransom theory of the atonement. Okay, the ransom theory of the atonement. So the ransom theory of the atonement, in a nutshell, teaches that in the fall, man owed a debt to Satan, came under the control of Satan, and had to be ransomed from his control. And so Christ's death offers himself as a ransom to pay that debt and to release mankind from captivity. So probably one place that you'd be familiar with where you could see the ransom theory would be C.S. Lewis's children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you'll remember, when Aslan is, is bound on the, the stone tablet and the white witch uh, has you know, all of these people uh, or, and animals, <laughs> stone figures in her, in her wicked castle. She says that she's owed a debt because of Edmund's uh, rebellion and, and so forth. And so Aslan dies, table cracks, and the debt has been paid, the deep magic and, and so forth. So that is the ransom theory. So what I would say about the ransom theory is that it is uh, inadequate to capture all of the truth of the, what's involved in the atonement. Is there a ransom? Yes, there is. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So there is a ransom involved. It's just not to Satan. It is to the Father himself. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.